What? Welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. I'm your host, Tom Kearns. Thank you very much for coming back, or if this is your first episode, welcome. I hope you will join us on this journey from the end of Roman Britain to the Norman Conquest. This week, episode two, Sub-Roman Britain. Last time, we talked about the end of Roman Britain, how and why the imperial government collapsed, why people abandoned towns and villas in favour of ancient hill forts, and whether the Roman way of life continued in Britain. Today's episode expands on that to focus on the peoples and politics of Britain in the post-imperial period. In particular, today's episode will focus on the emergence of sub-Roman Britain in the 5th and 6th centuries. That term probably needs some explaining. You will often hear people talking about post-Roman this or sub-Roman that. At least you do if you move in the circles that I move in. In Britain, the terms emerged out of the disciplines of history and archaeology, respectively. Historians tended to speak of post-Roman due to the catastrophic end of Roman rule discussed in the main written evidence. In contrast, archaeologists tended to speak of sub-Roman to indicate that the archaeological material tended to suggest decline in quality and quantity, but also continuity in forms and attitudes, thus making the term post-Roman inappropriate since the material evidence pointed to some continuing elements of Romanness. With these first two episodes, I want to show you both sides of the narrative. Last episode, we focused on the end of Roman Britain. Today's episode will focus on how Rome continued to influence the Britons, and how this influence shaped the world that the Saxons encountered when they arrived in the mid-5th century. It seems unlikely that a Briton in the early 5th century knew that they'd lived through the end of Roman Britain. As Guy Halsall points out in his iconoclastic book, Worlds of Arthur, all written accounts of the end of Roman Britain were composed with the hindsight of at least a few decades, when it was clear that things were not improving for the empire. In the early 5th century, there is every reason to think that people expected the legions to be resupplied eventually, that Roman order would return. Hindsight is of course 2020, so we know that that didn't happen. But especially since the decline of Roman Britain was several generations old by 406-407, it's difficult to imagine that most Britons would wake up one morning and suddenly see themselves as post-Roman. On the contrary, the evidence indicates that at least the British elite continued to affect Romanness and to cultivate contact with the wider Roman world for over a century after the terminal dates of 406 to 410. The continued building in fortified western towns like Bath and Exeter suggests that even if they were no longer urban settlements, they were at least being used by elites, indicating that they retained some importance as symbols of authority. At elite sites like Tintagel in Cornwall and Longbury Bank in Wales, wine and other goods continued to be imported from the eastern Mediterranean into the 6th century. The same elites who controlled these centres also commissioned memorial inscriptions, written in Latin, in which they styled themselves with Roman titles. The practice of memorialising the dead in stone is itself distinctively Roman, these stones also provide evidence that Britons were keeping up with developments in Latin elsewhere in the empire. This is seen, for example, in the Cantioryx inscription from North Wales. This gravestone commemorates a Wenedotian citizen. I'll say more on Wenedotia later. But the word it uses for citizen is very interesting. 
It doesn't use civis, C-I-V-I-S, the correct term in formal Latin. Instead, it uses kiwe, C-I-V-E, which is a spoken form of the word that occurs elsewhere in Western European inscriptions in the 5th and 6th centuries. Remember that for most of human history, the spelling of words was not fixed, and people tended to write the way that they spoke. The kiwe of the Cantioric inscription suggests that a Briton in North Wales in the 5th and 6th century was familiar enough with changes in popular Latin on the continent that he reflected them in a gravestone, apparently with the expectation that others would be able to understand it. Since elite sites in the West continued to trade with the Roman world, this isn't surprising, but it is telling since it indicates the extent to which Britain remained part of a larger Roman cultural zone. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. Apparently, the Britons also still saw themselves as citizens worthy of imperial protection. At some point between 447 and 454, Gildas tells us that they sent a plea for military aid to the consul Flavius Aetius. To quote Gildas directly, quote, Again, therefore, the wretched remnant sending to Aetius, a powerful Roman citizen, addresses him as follows. To Aetius, now consul for the third time, the groans of the Britons. And again, a little further thus, the barbarians drive us to the sea, the sea throws us back onto the barbarians. Thus, two modes of death await us. We are either slain or drowned. End quote. If the plea was actually sent, and isn't just a part of a legendary tradition co-opted by Gildas, then it's telling that the Britons seemingly felt that the Romans would come to their aid as fellow citizens. Remember, Zosimus said that the Britons went into rebellion in 409. But if this was so, then why would they expect help from Rome later? 
Probably they felt this way because they'd already received help from the continent, even after the legions had left. The most well-documented case of this is that of Germanus, Bishop of Auxerre, who travelled to Britain in 429 to combat the Pelagian heresy. While there, he also used his former experience as a soldier to help the Britons defend themselves from Pictish and Saxon raiders. Probably, the Britons hoped for similar aid when they sent their later groans, but this time no help came. Nevertheless, the important thing to stress about the Germanus episode, along with the continued interaction with Roman traders, is that it seems likely that the Britons, or at least the British elite, still saw themselves as part of the wider Roman world. While, with hindsight, the early 5th century is a major moment of change, there is a significant amount of evidence to suggest that at the time the change was not immediately obvious. However, even while the elites continued to see themselves as Roman, the world they occupied was changing. The relative unity that had characterised Roman rule was being replaced by a more fragmented political structure, based around relatively small kingdoms, and this fragmentation was weakening the Britons' ability to resist barbarian incursions. The British elite in the 5th and 6th centuries were less wealthy than their predecessors had been. Add to this the end of centralised Roman authority, and the period becomes a hotbed for factionalism and civil war, as elites struggle to establish themselves. Gildas refers on several occasions to infighting among the Britons, and this infighting is usually seen as the political context in which new British successor states emerged. The early history of these states is completely lost in a fog of myth. Several of them, including Gwynedd, Dyved and Dumnonia, seem to have existed in some form by the mid-6th century. This is when Gildas is usually thought to have written, and in his letter on the ruin of Britain, he identifies several tyrants associated with the three kingdoms just named. Much later, written sources would attribute the foundation of these kingdoms to legendary figures, such as Cuneva, but there is no evidence to support or refute these stories. Geographically, the British successor states of which we know anything were all located in the rugged terrain of the west and north. In some places, the rulers of these new kingdoms exploited the terrain by building new fortifications in hard-to-reach places like Tintagel in Cornwall, Deganwy in Gwynedd, and Dumbarton Rock in Strathclyde. Elsewhere, these new kingdoms developed around old Roman forts and towns, such as in South Wales, where Dyved emerged around Moridunum, modern Carmarthen, or Powys in northeastern Wales, which developed around the town of Chester. Probably these states grew organically out of the Romano-British elite who sought refuge in the hills. Consequently, they also retained elements of the older Roman political structure. Remember the Cantioric inscription? Well, that offers the earliest extant evidence for one of these successor states. The Wenedotia mentioned in that inscription is elsewhere identified as the Latin name for Gwynedd, the kingdom of medieval North Wales. In that stone, the dead man's cousin, Maglus, is called a magistrate, indicating that early Gwynedd retained some elements of surviving Roman hierarchy. The fighting that came with the emergence of these new kingdoms certainly weakened the Britons' ability to defend themselves against barbarian invasion. The Irish, Picts and Saxons had always threatened Britain, but until now they could be rebuffed by a somewhat unified response. Once the British elites began warring among themselves, they fell into the mistake that has seen people throughout history fall to expansionist powers.
their infighting and old grudges could be easily exploited, and once it became clear that Rome wouldn't be sending help, the Britons began to look elsewhere for aid. At some point, exactly when is not clear, a council met headed by a powerful figure known only as Watergern. While often treated as a name, Watergern actually seems to be a title, since in Britonic it means something like overlord. Regardless, the story offered by Gildas tells us that this Watergern led the council in deciding on a new strategy to defend Britain. They would pay off one of the barbarian groups with some land and get them to fight off the other barbarian tribes. We don't know why they chose the Saxons as their new allies. Possibly they felt that their homeland was too far away from Britain to cause a problem, or possibly they had more positive views of them than they did of the Irish and the Picts. For whatever reason, Watergern and the council chose to invite the Saxons to settle in eastern Britain in return for their help as warriors. It was a decision that would reshape Britain and the world forever. Of course, we don't know how true this story actually is, but it is undeniable that in the 5th century something happened that caused the Germanic language and the Germanic culture to become dominant in the south and east of Britain. The peoples responsible were the very allies that Watergern had hoped would save sub-Roman Britain. Exactly how and why this major change occurred is a topic of huge debate, and that will be the focus of our next episode when we discuss, finally, the Adventus Saxonum, the coming of the Saxons. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. You can find a bibliography for this and future episodes on the show's website, the link for which you can find in the show notes. I look forward to seeing you again next time. And once again, I am your host, Tom Kearns, and this is the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Thank you for listening. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.